Well, good morning again. Glad you were with us today. Welcome to fall. And uh, if you stick around long enough, like tonight, it'll be winter. So that'll be cool. That's just we're going to get uh, some snow showers tonight. That'll be interesting. Hey, we are continuing in the book of 1 Timothy. And uh, today we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2. If I make a mistake somewhere, since it's 1 Timothy chapter 2, I may get confused at some point and say 2 Timothy. We're not in 2 Timothy. Just so you know, anytime I say that, we're really in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, but the ones and the twos have got me a little confused. Uh, anyway, today we're going to talk about uh, prayer being a major focus. And uh, I'm hoping uh, that this will be something that uh, ministers to you, and we're going to talk about some things that are challenging today, uh, but I hope that you leave here uh, feeling like you've understood more of God's Word and what He wants from us and how He wants us to be. Uh, one day, there was a missionary named Hudson Taylor who was traveling on a Chinese ship, and he'd been uh, witnessing to a man named Peter on the ship uh, who was resisting the message but was uh, under deep conviction, he could tell. As they were talking, Peter actually fell overboard and Taylor panicked when he saw that no one made any effort to save the man. Uh, instinctively, he kind of sprang into action and he let down the sail and jumped overboard in hopes of finding his friend. There was a, a fishing boat close by, so Taylor tried to solicit their help, but they wouldn't stop their fishing to look for this drowning man unless, of course, Taylor agreed to pay them. Not only that, but to his surprise, they wanted to barter for every last penny that he had. Finally, after he agreed to pay them a very sizable sum, they agreed to help. In less than a minute, after dragging with the fishing net, they found Peter. But unfortunately, it was too late. Peter had died. They'd been way too busy fishing to worry about a drowning man. Now, that's a tragic story. How calloused and self-centered those Chinese fishermen must have been to realize that a man was drowning nearby and yet they did nothing to help. They were more concerned about their own financial gain than about saving his life. But before we condemn them too quickly, folks, let me ask us a question. How concerned are we with people around us who are perishing without Jesus Christ? Do we care more about our own comfort, our own financial gain, than we do about people dying without the Savior? Do we go on about our business day after day, week after week, without really any burden for those who need to know Christ as their Savior? Let's read 1 Timothy chapter 2, and let me just remind you before we read it, uh, this is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy. Uh, he's now the pastor. Timothy's now the pastor of the church at Ephesus, of which the book of Ephesians is written to. Uh, and, and so this is kind of a book to uh, the church in Ephesus, even though it's specifically written to Timothy the pastor, it's written in a way that, that really we would expect the church to be looking behind uh, and reading over Timothy's shoulder. And so let's read uh, this chapter. And uh, uh, one more thing before we go on. Uh, let me remind us that we always want to come to God's word and read out of it into our lives. We want to be very cautious that we don't take our preconceived notions, our preconceived minds, our preconceived decisions, what we currently know, and read it into God's Word, trying to force it somehow into our mind, but rather let God's Word change our minds. Let's read 1 Timothy chapter 2. Here's what it says. It says, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. 
This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now already I see some of your eyes shifting back and forth. Did I really just read that? Yes, I did. We'll get there, I promise. But I want you to see in this passage, there are six basic thoughts that are really key and principled here. And I want you to see that the first one is this. Prayer is the key to living a godly life and reaching those far from God. Let's go back to verses 1 through 4 and think about this idea that prayer is really the key. It is the key to living a godly life, ourselves, and it is the key to reaching those who are far from God. First of all, then, I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We see here that God wants us to be involved in all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. Paul mentions specifically four kinds of prayer, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. Now Paul's basically saying here that we should be involved in prayer that acknowledges our dependence on God and our dependence for him, to him, our communication with him, asking for things from him and for others, and express our deep thankfulness to him for who he is and what he has done for us. He's basically saying, guys, in every single way that you can possibly pray, pray, and pray for everyone that you know. He specifically points out a group of people that need to be prayed for. He says, pray for those who are government officials, who are in authority, so they will exercise their authority well, and it will benefit us. Now, I think there should be a Facebook law that no one can complain about any political person or subject before praying earnestly for them or the situation. Don't you think that would be a good law? I mean, I get on Facebook and, and my friends, uh, not just the ones in this room, but my friends from high school and college and other places, man, they will, they will talk about every politician. They will get in arguments and put them down as they possibly, must, you know, po most possibly can. I mean, just degrade them. And it seems to me that praying would seem to be a better strategy than complaining or resisting. I think God's right in that. 
I think if we spent more time praying for those whom we disagree with, who maybe uh, irritate us, who maybe we think are uh, moving uh, our city or our state or our country in the wrong direction, we could certainly accomplish more by praying than we ever will by complaining. I think God's right. It's also pleasing to God that we pray for everyone. Why? Why did he say pray for everyone? He says, because he wants them all to be saved. It is God's desire to save all people. We see this right here in this passage. Look back at verses 3 and 4 again. This is good and it is pleasing the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now I understand that there's a little bit of tension here, right? I mean, if God really wants everybody to be saved, why doesn't he just save them? Why don't he just make them get in line? Well, you know, I don't know. (laughs) It's part of God's design. His design is for him to initiate relationships and to allow man to respond. But it's important for us to understand this premise, folks. We can't argue anybody into the kingdom. We can't debate somebody into the kingdom. Now, while I'm I'm all for us sharing the gospel and talking about all the reasons why I believe and why I trust Christ, all for that, you know that. We talk about that a lot around here. But the reality is, it's going to take God's spirit to draw them to us. But what he's saying is, I'm already drawing them. I'm already loving them. I want everybody to be saved. When we're not reaching people at a level that we feel satisfied with, which, by the way, I've never been satisfied in my life. I've never felt like, you know... I'm on a pace where I can just kind of coast and not pick up the pace any in reaching those who are far from God. Never felt that in my life. As long as there's 300,000 lost people in Clay and Platt counties, we shouldn't think that way. But when we're not reaching people at a level we want to, it's never because God doesn't love them. It's never because he doesn't want them to be part of his family. It's never because he's not drawing them. We need to be very cautious that we don't ever get so arrogant as to say, hey, our church is doing all the right things. God's just not drawing them. God's just not pulling anybody to himself. We need to be really careful to ever think that way, folks. Uh, It's not going to come from me where we begin to blame God because it says right here, it's his desire that everybody comes to him. It's his wish. It's his desire. But he gives us the freedom to do what we want. And so some won't. But this should be great encouragement to us to know that when you're praying for someone, God's drawing them. When you're witnessing to someone, God's drawing them. When you're maybe afraid to talk to them at work about the gospel, you should because God's already drawing them. He's working on people's hearts. This week I had a wonderful thing happen to two men that don't know each other, have never met each other, didn't even know each other existed. Both had a connection with a man who's kind of in some trouble in his life. And these two men both told him to come to Fellowship of Grace. One of them he works with, and one of them was a guy that found us on the internet. Said, here's a good church where you live, you should go. I'm sure that's all big coincidence. You see, folks, God is pursuing people. Because he loves them. I know he pursued me because he loved me. 
we need to make sure that this stays in the forefront of our minds so that we don't act as though God is not drawing people to himself because he is. My prayer is not that God will pursue them because I know he's already doing, but that they will soften their hearts and their minds to be open to his pursuit and come and know Christ as their savior. The third principle I want you to see in this passage is not just that prayer is the key to living a godly life and reaching those far from God. It's not God's desire to save all people, but Jesus is the only way to salvation. Now again, you'd think that the apostle Paul certainly doesn't need to remind Timothy of this, does he? No, of course not. Timothy knows this. But he's reminding him of the importance of the message. Remember, in chapter 1, he said to him, don't waver from that message. Don't get off track. And by the way, there's a lot of stuff to get pastors off track. A lot of stuff going on to get us off track. Here's what he says in verses 5 through 7. He says, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. There is only one God. He has only one son who came to die one death on one cross so that we may have one way to connect with God through him. This is why it's so important to pray for people and to share the gospel with them. There is one way to heaven. You know, I was looking up some uh, illnesses this week on the internet, and, uh, you know, if you've got a cold, there's about a thousand ways that people have uh, to, to approach that and to try to cure you of your cold. It's the same with the flu and many other things. But, you know, there are a few diseases out there that there is only one medication for. Most of them are fairly new medications, but they're diseases that haven't been cured yet, and there's only one medication for these diseases. Folks... We need to remember, Paul is reminding Timothy that there is only one cure for the disease of sin, and that is salvation through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He wasn't saying, my way is the only way. He wasn't saying, my truth is the only truth. He wasn't saying, the way I do things is the only way. He wasn't saying, my morals are the only way. He's saying, I am the only way. And that way is simply to understand that you're a sinner, to realize you can't do anything to take away your own sin, but that God loved you enough to send his son Jesus to die on a cross. And that by putting your faith and trust in what he has already done, not doing anything to earn it, but trusting him and putting your faith in what he has already done is what gives us the forgiveness of our sins and a connection to God that will be eternal. There's one way. There aren't multiple ways. And he's reminding Timothy of this. Then he goes on to say there's not only just one way to salvation, but men should be leaders in the ministry of prayer. Look at verse 8. Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, it's an interesting verse. Have you ever heard anybody say, hey, let's have a prayer meeting Wednesday night. I want all the men to come, but hey, let's be careful we don't fight during the prayer meeting. You ever heard that before? I've never heard that before. But that's what he's saying. Think, think about how messed up this church is that when he says, hey, men, get together and pray, but man, don't get into big fights. That's a pretty messed up church. 
By the way, this is not the word that is gender neutral for mankind. He's not saying that I desire in every place that mankind should pray. He's specifically saying males, men, should lead in the ministry of prayer. Maybe that's because we need more of it. I don't know. This phrase, when he says lifting holy hands, what it is, it's not a requirement or even a term of physically lifting one's hands necessarily, although it can. It's the thought and act of communicating to God that we are helpless without him. We have a dependence on him. Think about it. When somebody says to you, hey, do you know how to you know, cure cancer? What do we do? I don't know. We do, why do we do that? Why is that just a natural reaction for us? It's because it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a physical uh, a symbol of us in our minds and hearts saying, I can't handle this. I don't know what to do. It's saying, God, I'd like to request that you heal my friend, but I have nothing to bring to the table except my request and my dependence on you. I can't fix it. I can't fix it. Only you can. Now, we do things like that all the time. When we shake hands with somebody, that started uh, by just showing your enemy that you have no sword in your hand. So when you walk up to a guy, you know, you're standing here like this, and they go, okay, what's he going to do? Oh, okay, okay, so now we can be friends. And that's the same way with lifting holy hands. It doesn't necessarily mean that everybody should always lift their hands when we pray. But it's this idea, it's this heart uh, uh, thing where we just go, God, I don't know what to do. Help me. Help me. I, I bring nothing to the table. I have no solutions. I have no answers. I'm trusting you because I know you do. Now, let's just be honest. And I don't want to get too uh, you know, goofy here about the theology of it. There are some things that we can do without God's help. I didn't pray this morning before I put socks on. I just did it. I didn't ask him to help me. I didn't lift up holy hands. I just put my socks on. All right? We do things all the time where we don't think about, and I know, technically... I have hands and God created them. I, I know I get all that. Okay, we can go backwards like that. I get it. But, but what it's saying here is, guys, when you have something to pray about, you need to have a heart attitude where you say, God, here's what I'm praying about, but I don't have a solution. I don't have a way, to, I don't have a way out of this. I've been in a lot of situations in my life, a lot of situations in my life where I just say, God, help me. I don't know what to do. I just don't know what to do. This isn't putting my socks on. I got big problems, and I don't know what to do. Now, he's talking about in the church. So he's talking about, men when we come together, have this attitude, pray together. But let me ask you a question. When the church has some kind of a prayer meeting, why aren't all the men here? Why aren't all the men here? They should be. There's nothing more important He's saying that a church can do than to pray. Why are so many men anxious or embarrassed or reluctant to pray out loud amongst other believers who have the same father? Folks, for the Christian man, the act of praying in church should be one of the most basic disciplines. Now, I've been watching the kids in Upward the last few weeks. Uh, we've had four weeks already of, of Upward where the kids are learning basketball and cheerleading and, and, and we're teaching them about Jesus. That's really the point. And it's been really funny after four weeks to watch some of them get better at dribbling. I mean, the first week, this is, a, this is an introductory league. It's a, it's, a, it's a league where kids who've never played before can get in and get involved. And it's really interesting because some of them, they just couldn't dribble at all at the beginning. Some of them are getting a little better. Now, there's one little girl that hasn't, 
Nobody's ever told her if she hasn't figured out that she doesn't have to bounce like the ball. So she's running all the time, and then she gets the ball, and she does this. She, she's, she's actually, like, bouncing herself as she's trying to bounce the ball because she hasn't figured out that she can just stay still and bounce the ball. There's another little boy who gets the ball, and he starts bouncing it, but he doesn't move his feet. So it bounces about three times, and then he has to go chase it. He, they're, they're getting there, though, okay? I, I, I kind of wonder sometimes why some of the men in, in churches, when it comes to praying, they're still trying to figure out how to bounce the ball without bouncing themselves. Can't play the game if you can't dribble. And you can't overcome your own sin, and you can't see people you love saved from theirs if you don't learn to pray, men. Now, women should pray too. He's not saying women shouldn't pray, but he is saying, men, you need to lead in the ministry of prayer. Men, in Fellowship of Grace, I publicly challenge you right now to make prayer a bigger priority in your personal life, in your church life, and stop being afraid to speak to God amongst other people. All right? Enough of that. Let's move on. Men should be leaders in the ministry of prayer. We then, women should focus on inner righteousness rather than outward appearances. Look at verses 9 and 10. It says, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. So a little background here, all right? A little background. This letter was being written again to Timothy to deal with specific problems being experienced by the church at Ephesus. Remember in the first chapter, Paul asked Timothy to deal with false teachers And he even called two of them out by name, and Paul said, I've already taken care of them. I've turned them over to Satan. But Paul's writing here about a problem that does exist in the church. In a passage like this, we need to determine what are the timeless principles that apply to all people of all times, and what is the specific application of the day and the culture that may or may not apply to us today. Let me help you understand that. So the timeless principles in this verse are pretty obvious, I think. Women should dress in respectable ways that communicate modesty and self-control. The word modesty actually means to be free from shame. I think about the times when my uh, sister would sneak out of the house with clothes in her purse and change somewhere else and wear something that my mom wouldn't let her wear because she was ashamed to be caught in it. Okay, modesty means to be free from shame everywhere. So wearing something you wouldn't be ashamed to be seen in by anybody. And it's not attracting attention to one's body or to create lust in others. Now, I don't think it's a newsflash to suggest that men are attracted by things they see, right? It's not a newsflash to anybody. I mean, that's why the pornography industry is so huge. Ladies, you shouldn't be coming to church putting on a show. That's what it's saying. Dress in a way that's appropriate. Now, that word appropriate is a little challenging. Because when we talk about what's appropriate, some would argue that it's subjective. Now, certainly there are some things that aren't subjective. I mean, they're pretty obvious. 
But there is a sense of subjectivity to what is worn. Certainly, uh, the way that people respond to something can determine whether or not it's appropriate. For instance, jeans are appropriate here at Fellowship of Grace. Now, while some people in the worship service or in the worship team somewhere wear shorts and flip-flops when it's really hot, I don't do that because I just don't feel like it's appropriate for the pastor to be in shorts and flip-flops. Because, you know, I know even ladies, you know, staring at my legs and not listening to the sermon, all that kind of thing. Shouldn't be doing that, okay? So jeans are appropriate here, but in the church I grew up in, only the people that were rebellious toward God wore jeans. Now, there might come a guest into our church sometime who thinks I should be in a suit, They don't represent the majority of this context and what is appropriate here. But when I go and speak at other places, one of the first questions I ask is, what should I wear? Because this isn't appropriate everywhere. It's appropriate here. Hardly anybody is offended by my appearance here, I think. But if I went to certain churches dressed like this, that that would be really presumptuous. It would be offensive. So I need to wear what's appropriate there. Now let's talk about specifics in this verse. Is it wrong to braid your hair, wear a gold wedding ring to church, or wear pearls? It says that right in the passage. You see that? Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. So are those banned from Christian women? No. Here's why. This verse is talking about focus and emphasis. All right? In this time, when women would braid their hair, they would braid in jewels, costly ornaments, all kinds of stuff in their hair. It was like the American Music Awards, you know? And, and they were a sight to be seen, and it showed how wealthy they were. Gold and pearls at this time communicated, I'm wealthy, probably way more wealthy than most of you. Okay? We don't have any of those thoughts. When a woman walks into this church with a gold wedding band on, nobody goes, oh, look at her. Look at her just put on airs like that. That's ridiculous. I'm so ashamed of her. Nobody thinks that way, okay? So that doesn't apply. That specific application doesn't make sense in our culture. But the principle is still timeless. There are things that you, you know, shouldn't be doing here. Now, listen, when women dress for, you know, prom... I, I, you know, or their wedding day, I get that. You know, it's, it's all about the hair, the makeup, you know, the manicure, the pedicure, the dress, all of that. Fine, go, go to your wedding, go to prom, whatever. Do those things. But when you come to church, the emphasis of your beauty should be in your behavior, your good works, not what's seen on the outside. Does that make sense? I hope so. There's no ban on braids or gold or pearls. You know, sometimes, you know, I've, I've lived with, you know, three women. I've got a wife and two daughters. And sometimes the girls would go, oh, I don't want to do anything with my hair today. I'm just going to braid it real quick. They'll braid it real quick and they'll come to church. They're not meaning anything by that. Nobody reads into anything about that. And so it doesn't communicate the same things. But there are things that you could wear to church that, break the, that violate the principle. 
I'm, I'm going to do this and show everybody how much money I have. That violates the principle. I'm going to do this because all of my emphasis is on the outside. That violates the principle. Now, it doesn't mean, ladies, that you can't, you know, get up and do your normal stuff. Okay? It doesn't mean you can't put on makeup and do your hair and look presentable. That's fine. It's only saying, folks, when our, when, especially ladies, when your emphasis gets on the outside more than the inside, you've got it all backwards. And you shouldn't come to church doing that. Now, why doesn't, it, why doesn't this apply to men? Well, two reasons. One, uh, women are not attracted nearly as much as men are to visual things, for one. And two, let's just be honest, men, we frankly don't care what we look like, okay? Most of the time. For the most part, most of us can get ready in five or ten minutes, and most of our beautiful wives take a little longer to prepare, right? I think it's pretty clear here, folks. The timeless principle is that we should focus on the inside, not the outside, and ladies, dress appropriately, dress in a godly manner that you would not be embarrassed or humiliated if Jesus walked in the back door of the church, Principle number six, women should not usurp the authority of male leadership in the church. Verses 11 through 15, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, we, before we get into this, let me remind you that what we talk about when we're talking about the authority in the home, because we talk a lot about how the home should be set up and what God says, values and roles are not the same thing. Men and women have equal importance to God. Men and women have equal access to God. They have equal gifting and blessings from God. They have equal intelligence and spirituality, although some would say women are better. Neither is superior to the other. They do, however, have different roles. That does not make one better than the other. And the church is no different than the home, folks. Every single time Paul mentions the role differences, either in the home or in the church, he refers back to the Old Testament. So these differences are not seemingly created by the culture or the time, but by the consistency of God's principles. And we're going to see in this passage, the specific reasons here are outside of time and culture, they're consistent. But there is one cultural part of this passage I don't want you to miss, Now, while this passage seems very limiting to women, I want you to understand that Paul is actually suggesting freedom for women to learn. Look back at how this passage starts. Here, Paul starts off by saying, let a woman learn in the church, which was a radical idea of feminism at the time. Women were not allowed to attend school. They were not allowed to have formal education. Most of them couldn't read. And they were told to learn from their husbands at home. Don't don't talk at church. Don't learn at church. Learn from your husbands. Paul's being a radical feminist 
when he says, women, come to church and participate in learning with the men. So let's talk about specifically what this means. Because I think there's a lot of confusion about it. Paul says specifically two things. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And some of your translations may say silent. It's getting really hot in here. Someone want to check the thermostat of that? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay. This is not nearly as extreme as it sounds, folks, on the outside. I think when you understand it, you're going to realize it's not nearly that extreme. These verses deal specifically with the problem in the Ephesian church where women had taken over, where chaos was reigning in their worship services. Listen, when you have to tell the men to pray without getting into a fight, this church is messed up. These verses deal with an attitude of submission to the male leadership in the church. It is not talking about about women not opening their mouths. It doesn't mean, ladies, from now on when you walk in the front door, you can't talk anymore to each other. No, it's not saying anything like that. Let me suggest this to you also, that every church I've ever been to where the women are in charge, and I have been to several, uh, uh, not recently, but when I was playing music, It's not because the women have taken some self-help, learned to take initiative course, and they've exercised a, a coup on the church and taken over from the men. This happens because men don't step up and be leaders in their homes and their church, and women fill the vacuum of leadership. If no men lead, somebody has to. And if men won't step up and do it, the ladies just always do. Now, what does this specifically mean on these two specific things? That women should not teach or exercise authority over men. It means that the church should be led and taught by male elder pastors, and women should not attempt to fulfill or promote themselves into those roles. Well, that Paul, man, he was really a misogynist, wasn't he? I mean, he really just didn't let, he wouldn't let women be pastors, Boy, I'm glad that, you know, I kind of wish he was more like Jesus. Okay, well, Jesus chose 12 apostles. They were all men. There were elders in the early church that were all men. And we're going to see later in this, in this very book, in the book of First Timoth- uh, Timothy, that all elders and deacons, the first qualification for them is that they be the husband of one wife. Now, I don't know how women are the husband of one wife, maybe in our culture, but not in theirs. Those were all men. So can women have no positions of authority in the church? No, of course they can. These two specific things, while separate, they kind of go together. Women can't teach men, which basically means they can't teach in the body. They, they can't come up here and present a sermon to all of the men. The other thing is that they can't serve an authority over a man. Now, that's not an authority of everything. It's over the authority of the teaching ministry, which is basically an elder pastor. Women can't fulfill the role of teaching the body doctrinal truth. Does that mean every woman pastor is outside of God's will? Yes, it does. That's exactly what it means. Here's why. If, if Julie were the pastor here, I know she about fell out of her chair, 
if Julie were the pastor, how does that work out in real life? See, God's word works out in real life, folks. How would that work out in real life? I'm supposed to be the spiritual leader of my home, so I'm the spiritual leader as we're driving to church, but when we hit the church parking lot, now she's the pastor and she's my spiritual authority. So now we talk about an issue at church and she tells me what I probably should do and I take her advice and think that's really good and then we drive home and all of a sudden I'm now the spiritual authority. And I say, yeah, you know what? I think my pastor's off his noodle, her noodle and so we're gonna do it a different way. And now she has to be, see, it just doesn't work, folks. It doesn't work in real life. It doesn't make any sense. Now how does this work out in real life here at Fellowship of Grace? Here's how it works out. We don't have any women pastors, nor will we. We don't have any women deacons, nor will we. But we have women in all kinds of roles. We have women who who can lead a song that you saw this morning. Casey stood right here and led you all in a song. She's not teaching spiritual doctrine to the body. She's not usurping the authority in any of your homes. We don't have women uh, teaching doctrine in community groups. We have couples leading community groups and and men leading those conversations. And by the way, uh, women, a hundred times in the New Testament, the word teaching is used or to teach. And every single time except three, it's about teaching in the body. Can you teach your children? Of course you can. Can you teach the children in ministry? We have women leading ministries back here in our children's ministries. Uh, These little boys who are five and six, she's not usurping his authority in his home. He has no authority. He's a child. But what does it do to a man who's trying to be a godly biblical man to try to lead his home and then to come to church and place himself under the authority of another woman? It's bizarre. It's bizarre. It produces some very strange things. We have a woman who's the secretary of our organization. She keeps track of all the stuff that goes on, keeps records of everything, does a great job. We have a woman who's our treasurer. She helps keep track of the money with our our accounting firm and works with them and, and presents all of that to us. But we don't have women standing up here uh, preaching a sermon. And I guarantee you, if I get sick some morning, Pastor Derek may fill in, Pastor John may fill in, Christopher may fill in, Rob may fill in, somebody may fill in, but Julie's not going to fill in. That's not going to happen. Okay? Because we want to do what God's word says. Why isn't this cultural? Can't we just say, well, that was just in Paul's day. It doesn't, doesn't really apply to us today. That's just what they saw. Well, let's look and see why he gives this timeless justification He says, here's two reasons why this should be the way it is. First, Adam was created first, and then Eve. In the creation, there is an order. That order is man was created first, and then Eve was created as his helper. Then he says, if you look at the fall, Eve was deceived. Adam wasn't deceived. Eve was deceived and ate of the fruit, and then she gave it to her husband. And if you look very carefully at the wording in Genesis, Adam's sin was not eating the fruit. Adam's sin was listening to his wife over God. I'm not making that up. You go read it. Paul's saying there is a reason that doesn't apply to my culture, doesn't apply to my time, and it's, it's, it's fundamentally the principle forever. And so I hope that brings some clarity to that. Women, this should be freeing to you, not put handcuffs on you. 
You can do practically everything in this church that you would like to do except stand up here and preach God's word and be a pastor or a deacon. Now let me just discuss for a minute this last sentence in this passage. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now listen, when the Bible is clear, I'm going to stand up here and preach and say, this is what God says, this is what God means, it's pretty clear. And when it's not clear, I'm going to say, listen, I'm not sure I have a clue what this means. (laughs) This is a verse that is probably one of the most controversial verses in the whole Bible. It's probably most poorly understood verses, probably one of the top ten. We don't really have a clear and concise understanding of it. But there are five basic views of this verse, and all of them have some kind of lexical or grammatical problem or error with it. Let me share them with you very briefly, and I'll share them with you from the worst choice to the best choice, but we really don't understand what it means. It could mean that women will be kept safe through childbirth in spite of the curse of the fall. Of course, the problem with that is it's just not true, and God's word is true. Many women have died, even godly women have died in childbirth, so that can't mean can't be what it really means through the childbirth, namely the birth of Christ, the seed of a woman who brought salvation to the humans. Of course, the problem with this view is if this were Paul's meaning, he could, he could hardly have chosen a worse way to say that. I mean, if that was really what he was trying to mean, this is like the worst possible way you could say that. Third choice could be it may mean that women will be preserved from insignificance and find fulfillment by bearing children. But this imposes a very unusual meaning of the word saved that's never used anywhere else in the New Testament. That's a problem. It may mean that women will be saved from the corruption of this sinful world by assuming their proper role in the home. While this might be closer to the truth, it doesn't really grant the normal meaning to the word saved again. And the last view is it may mean that women will be saved spiritually with an emphasis kind of on their future salvation, if their lives show the fruit of saving faith, namely their submission to God's order as evidenced by taking their proper role as godly mothers and wives. This is probably the best view since the word saved in the pastoral epistles always refers to spiritual salvation, but it's not crystal clear. So I'll just give you that to think on. You can, if you figured that out this week, give me a call and let me know what you figured out. All right? But, but you can Google it, you can go and find the people who have been debating uh, this particular passage for generations. Now, when we read the kind of passages that we read today, let me just remind you of a couple of things really quickly, and then we're going to go. I want to ask you a question. What is your attitude towards God's word? Is it compliance or is it defiance? I think that's important. When God's word says something that I might not like when I first hear it, is my tendency to go, God, I'm going to comply because I know you're right? Or is it to defy because I don't like it? Second is, what is your attitude toward the opposite sex in the church? Folks, it's either competitive or it's cooperative. God's word is always wanting us to be cooperative with one another, not competitive. Not scratching for position. I know what you've heard this morning is very countercultural. Boy, do I know it's countercultural. But let's think through that idea for just a second. The culture is currently producing and offering political fights, riots, gender wars, murder, crime, 
anxiety, nervousness, fear, worry, broken relationships, massive amounts of children on psych drugs, and chaos. That's what the culture's offering you. God, through his son Jesus Christ, is offering you hope, love, peace, acceptance, purpose, meaning, sanity, order, and eternal life. All of a sudden, countercultural is sounding pretty good. Sounding pretty good. One of Satan's best schemes is to take what God does and wants and turn it right upside down and make it look really good. Folks, God has an order in the home and God has an order in the church. And the more we comply with it, not just with our behavior, but with our minds and our hearts, the more order he brings to our lives, the more peace and sanity he brings to our lives. I'm telling you, the designer knows the best way to make it work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your letter to Timothy through the Apostle Paul. Father, I pray that you would help us as we hear your word to be changed by it. God, help us to be serious about praying for others. Help us to consider the names of those we know that are far from you and pray for them. Pray for them as though they were drowning in the sea because they are. God, help us to pray for one another. Help the men of this church to step up. Father, I am so grateful that ours is not a church full of women who bring their children to church, but their husbands and wives, men and women. We just have a great number of men that come to church. God, help us continue to step up and be prayer warriors. Help us lead our families in prayer. Help us lead our church in prayer. And help us to just spend time uh, dialoguing with you. Father, help us to order our homes and our church in a way that brings you honor and glory, in a way that allows you to work through us and in us and do great things that you want to do in the lives of those who are far from you. God, use us in a great way in this community to win the people in Clay and Platte counties who are without you. God, we offer ourselves up to you. We acknowledge to you that we have holy hands, giving nothing to you but our very lives, saying, God, help us, help us, help us to be who you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.